We're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week, and this is a continuation. And uh, we said that all genuine repentance begins with godly sorrow. Uh, it begins with godly sorrow. Another word that we could use, we could use for, for that word repent or godly sorrow is the word regret. Anybody in the room ever experienced regret on some level? Some, some level you, you, you regret something you said, something you did? About three of you. Four, five. Well, well, everybody in this room, if we're honest this morning, have experienced some form of regret. Yet the scripture says that it is godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. See, all change, all lasting change begins with a change of mind followed by a change of direction. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, for godly sorrow, godly sorrow produces repentance or a change of thinking which leads to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice Paul makes a distinction between what godly sorrow is and what the sorrow of the world is. There is a godly sorrow that is genuine and authentic that leads to life. It leads to a change in my thinking and a change in my way of living. But there is a worldly sorrow, a temporary sorrow that leads to death. You, you, you know what somebody says? Sorry, but. Oh, oh here's, the, here's one of my favorite. If I did anything to hurt your feelings. Now, is that a genuine show of regret if it starts with the word if? Whenever we begin a statement with the word if, it automatically denotes uncertainty about something. That means I'm not even sure about what I'm apologizing about. And that's how we often live our lives. It is a form of regret. Usually it's a form of regret that we express because we got caught. But if we hadn't gotten caught, we still would have been doing what we had been doing the whole time. It begins with a genuine regret for the choices and the decisions that we've made. If you and I are going to experience times of refreshing, we have to get to the point where we begin to say to ourselves, there is a better way than my way. So I'm going to ask my five young people. Come on up, uh, Benjamin and, uh, and uh, Jalen and uh, who else I got? I need two more. I need two more. I need five. I need five. I need five. Come on, Benjamin. I like those joggers. Bright red. I love them. All right. Were you regret last week? Yeah, there's two more. Fantastic. I need five. Okay, I'm going to move this forward. And I'm just going to do this visual, and it's sort of where we, we started and we left off, because I want to show you the progression of how you and I begin to access those times of refreshing that God has promised to each of us, because that's what he desires for us. As a gospel-shaped community of faith, as someone who lives a gospel-shaped life, there is a progression that leads away from God, and there is a progression that leads toward God. Uh, last week, I kind of ran through the overview. Today, I'm just going to give you the progression that leads away from God. This is critically important because if we're honest with ourselves, there have been moments and even seasons in our lives when we took steps away from the plans that God had for us. OK, so how many do I have? I have five. OK, let me switch places with you. 
and then you guys, you two come this way, okay? And you can stand right there, okay? We said that all repentance begins with regret, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. But here's the progression, uh, my progression away from God. It begins with a moment of regret that often transitions into what we call rationalization. One moment you feel sorry for what you did, and the next moment you begin to explain it away. Well, everybody's doing it. That's just the way things are, right? We say things like, uh, 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 oh, here's a good one. I can handle this. We say things like, nothing bad will happen. We say things like, it makes me happy. We say things like, God is gracious. I can escape the consequences. We say things like, it's just the way I am. We say things like, I'll just do it once and I'm done. We say things like, God will forgive and everything will be fine. We rationalize and say things like, it's not wrong. Everybody's doing it. Oh, here's one of my favorites. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. We say things like, I'll hide it. I'll cover it up. Rationalization. Let me tell you why rationalization is such a dangerous place to live. Because our rationalizations and our lofty opinions, the way we see things, if we allow those opinions to linger long enough, they become strongholds. I want you to hear that. In the 1980s, there was teaching that swept across the body of Christ about spiritual warfare. It got so out of balance that there were pastors who would put on camo and fatigues and, and they, would, they would rent helicopters. And they would get in helicopters and fly over cities because they were praying against the principalities and powers and strongholds over those cities. When what Jesus is saying in his word is that the strongholds, whereas there may be real spiritual darkness, the strongholds are really in our ways of thinking. Let me tell you now, your rationalization, my rationalization, my justification of what God says will destroy me will ultimately become a stronghold if I convince myself long enough that my way is the right way. Okay, we're not sure about that. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I know where 2 Corinthians is. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Are y'all with me? Where do these strongholds exist? Where do these strongholds exist? Sometimes in prayer, as Christ followers, we pray about the devil that's somewhere out there. We take authority over this stronghold and that stronghold, where the stronghold is right between our two ears, called our thought life. If you're not sure, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. In verse 3, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down what? God has given us tools and he's given us resources, spiritual weapons to pull down, to demolish strongholds. But where do the strongholds exist? 
It says, casting down what? Arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every what? Thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your disobedience is fulfilled. The danger of moving from regret, that momentary sorrow I feel about what I did, whether I got caught or whether conviction hit my heart and moving from there to rationalization is because rationalization, if left unchecked, will become a stronghold in your life. Now, let me tell you the the second thing about rationalization. If I can rationalize it long enough, it makes it okay. And if something is okay... I'm bound to repeat it. So I go from regret to rationalization to repetition. Because now I've rationalized it. It has become a stronghold in my life. So I'm bound to repeat what I think is right. And the whole time God says, if we continue down this pattern, down this journey, this trajectory, we forfeit the peace that comes only from him. Let me, let me tell you something about repetition. Repetition are patterns of behavior repeated over a period of time. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Repetition. Repetition. Notice what James McDonald said. In all choice to sin, there is a self-deception. In all choice to sin, somewhere I have told myself a lie that I have believed and I've said it is okay. In all sin, there is self-deception. In all choosing of the wrong, there is a lying to oneself. Mm. So I begin to repeat the behavior. Now, let me tell you why this is critical. Let me tell you why this is critical. I say, man, I, I shouldn't have done that. And I said, no, 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 it was really okay. Everybody's doing it. So I repeat the behavior. Now, why do I repeat the behavior? I want you to hear this now. I want you to hear this because this is critically important. Most of us repeat the behavior not only because it's good, but because it brings relief. It brings relief. The reason we felt regret here is because what we did We did in response to pain. The question you and I must ask ourselves, why do I continue to repeat this behavior that God says is destructive? Why do I keep doing something that I know is going to destroy me? Because it brings relief. Most of us in life don't want resolution, y'all. We just want relief from the pain. So Kirk Franklin said, Kirk Franklin, Kirk Franklin, y'all know Grammy Award winning Kirk Franklin who had addictive behaviors. I know that sometimes we have young people in that, so I won't go down that road. This is what Kirk Franklin said. He said, when we self-medicate, we delay God's healing process. I want you to stop for a second and think about every repetitive behavior in your life that has brought you relief over time. You feel better. The million-dollar question is not even talking about the repetitive behavior because the repetitive behavior is just the fruit. The million-dollar question is what pain am I medicating with this repetitive behavior? 
Let me tell you, the, 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 the most valuable, the most precious gift you and I will ever give to another human being, y'all, is a healthy soul. I'll say that again. The most valuable, the most precious gift you will ever give another human being is a healthy soul. When you and I begin to identify the repetition in our lives, I've got to stop long enough and say, I am doing this because it makes me feel better. I am repeating this behavior because it brings relief. It makes the pain go away momentarily. But what is this pain that I'm trying to medicate? What is at the root of this repetitive behavior? Now, let me say something about this stuff that we talk about, right? We talk about regret and rationalization, all that. Let me, let me tell you something. We wouldn't do it if it didn't feel good. You're acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. No, let me give you, let me give you scripture. Let me give you scripture first, just, just in case. Just in case, just in case y'all think I made that line up. Okay, can I give you scripture for that? Hebrews chapter 11. Come on, somebody. Verses 24 through 26. We're doing Bible study this morning. Is that okay? And let me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you, let me tell you, let me just set you free this morning. Because when most of us think about repetitive behavior, we're thinking about sexual sin. We're thinking about alcohol abuse and drug abuse. Nah, 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 nah. There's a whole lot of us in this room right now getting high on a bunch of other stuff. That we don't stick into our veins or pour down our throat. There are repetitive behaviors that, ha, I, Wendy and I have counseled long enough to know that there are some couples who can't get through a day without drama in the house. Unless somebody is mad about something, there is no peace in the house. There are people who are uncomfortable with peace. That is an addiction to some kind of pain that you're seeking relief from. So yeah, there are some people in this room right now that have issues on the freaky deaky side, but don't point fingers at them because we all have our drug of choice. There are some of us in this room who are addicted to success, who measure our worth by the size of our house, the size of our car. Uh, we measure success and our worth in life by our ability to one-up our best friend. I will only be happy as long as I make $100,000 more than you. Or maybe even $5,000 more than you. Or as long as I can buy a better car than you. And we repeat that behavior because that behavior brings relief. It takes the pain away. Identifying the repetitive behavior is secondary to identifying the pain that I'm trying to medicate. There's something in me that is broken. There is something in me that is unresolved and I can't fix it God's way. And remember, the reason we have to be gospel shaped is we have to experience times of refreshing that can only come from the presence of the Lord. But if I'm resistant to doing it God's way, I have to replace God's way with something else because the pain it's too much to bear. I need relief. So I repeat the behavior to experience relief. The question is, what's the pain that I'm medicating? That's the big question. For all of us in this room, 
for the repetitive behaviors that have been challenged by the people who love us the most. By the repetitive behaviors that the word of God will challenge us every time we open it and we just keep going back. You know why? Because we rationalize it and now the thing's a stronghold. Snap. How did I get here? I thought I could control this thing. And every time in my mind I say it's okay, it gets a little bit stronger. Every time I resist God's word and insist on doing it my way, that way of thinking becomes even more deeply entrenched and I get stuck a little bit longer. Huh? Hebrews 11. Notice what the scripture says. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Keep going. Verse 25 is critical. Listen to what he did. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Stop for a moment. Notice that word, pleasures. Notice that word, pleasures. It feels good. Feels good. It's pleasurable. If it didn't feel good, you wouldn't do it. But it feels good. And because it feels good, we convince ourselves that it must be good. If you read that verse in the King James, it says, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Notice the thing about sin now. Number one, it feels good, but it's got a shelf life. It has an expiration date. That feel-good feeling is going to wear off. And guess what? You're going to need another hit of whatever it is that you use to medicate your pain. It is the pleasures of sin. Feels real good, but it's for a season. This, this right here, man, look, right here is a bad place to be. The longer you rationalize it, the stronger it becomes. And the stronger you convince, the longer you convince yourself that it's okay, you're going to repeat it. And as long as you're repeating it, what you're doing is turning to that thing for relief. And we said, ultimately, it will produce what? Ruin. This same thing that makes you feel so good. This same thing that takes the pain away has the capacity to destroy you. It has the capacity to destroy your relationships. It has the capacity to destroy your friendships. It has the capacity to destroy and sabotage your calling, your purpose, and the plans of God. Y- y'all hang out there for, for a little bit longer, man. I think I'll buy y'all Starbucks after church or something. Racetrack. Oh, somebody said racetrack coffee. Get you a big cup. Here it is right here. So, so, so say this with me. Regret. Regret. Rationalization. Repetition, relief, ruin. We don't want to get to ruin. It is possible with divine intervention to stop right here. We don't have to get over here. We don't have to get here. Ruin is not inevitable. If we will heed the voice of God now, if we will heed the voice of God now, he, he, most of us, the temptation, let me I say most of us, the temptation for me is when I, when I 
studying or preaching, I start to think about all the other people who need this more than me. And so as I started to examine my own life, I started to see repetitive behaviors. And it forced me to ask myself that question. Ray, what are you medicating? It, it caused me to go start to think back like, man, what, what, why? What, what, what on in my heart have I not surrendered to God? I was able to identify a few things. I was able to identify a few things. But I think there's more, man. Just to allow God to do that deep abiding work of healing. Some of it, some of it just has to do with just being hurt. I've said it here before. For men especially, it's easier for us to say we're angry than to admit we're hurt. And over the six years that we planted, not, in fact, I could go all the way back to 2000. Since I've been in ministry in 2000 for 17 years, that's where I even started. That's where I started. Okay, how many faith wounds do you have as a result of just being in ministry? That's where I started. I didn't even go back to my early childhood. I just started to think about 17 years of being in ministry. Had a great conversation with the pastor. And he said, Ray, being in ministry is like getting a paper cut. It ain't going to kill you, but it sure does hurt. And being in ministry, you get one paper cut after the next. And then sometimes you just say, oh, man, it's okay. That's what we do, right? We just kind of brush it off. It's okay. It's okay. And we never really confront the fact that that hurt me. We never, ever really have to sit down and say, you hurt me. And instead, what we do is we internalize it. But something in me is hurting. Do you know that pain is a gift from God to let you know that something in your body is broken? Do you know that? That when I touch something and I burn, right, that is my body, my nerve endings at the tip of my fingers telling me that something is hurt. God gives us that same thing emotionally. When you feel hurt, God's saying you just got mistreated or someone or something you value has just been mistreated. Don't sweep it under the rug because we do that. We internalize it as men. We're supposed to be tough. We don't cry. We don't talk about it. As I realized, man, I could tell you story after story just about church hurt, just about faith wounds. And I started to say to myself, the most valuable gift I can give my wife and my two children, the most valuable gift I can give City Church is a healthy soul. And so I have to realize and recognize that I have to, I have to allow God to heal the pain. I can't self-medicate any longer. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Our repetitious behavior brings us relief, momentary, not resolution. So we can get stuck in that cycle of repetition and relief, repetition and relief, which will ultimately lead to ruin unless there is an intervention. I want you to count last week and this week as 
divine intervention. In fact, when you leave today, I want you to begin to ask yourself that question. How healthy is my soul? I started to ask myself that question. I was like, man, uh, most of us learn to play hurt. Isaiah Thomas, 1988 finals, Pistons versus Lakers, rolled his ankle, limped through the entire game, scored 30 plus points. And that's how most of us go through life. We don't stop long enough to let the sprain heal. Something about us tells us you got to stay in the game and continue to play even though your ankle is swollen. It's possible to be in ministry for 17 years and play hurt and have an unhealthy soul and spend 17 years medicating your pain and not allowing God to heal you. That's why we have to become a gospel-shaped community of faith where we allow the word of God to come in and challenge us so it can change us. The word of God will confront us so that we can experience healing and times of refreshing that can only come from the presence of God. So this is where I'm going to close. What time is it? None of my watches are ever correct. Huh? Okay, very good. All right, y'all go sit down. Y'all go sit down for a second. Yeah, very good, very good, very good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Let me tell you why this is critical. Let me tell you why this is critical. Let me tell you why all of us should do some measure of introspection. Because this kind of stuff comes to us all. Nobody in this room is exempt. Nobody in this room is exempt. Nobody. Let me tell you, let me say it this way. The devil comes in and wounds us early so that he can make a withdrawal later on in life. I am telling you, I am telling you, there are some of us here who are dealing with stuff that we were exposed to and experienced at an early age and the devil wounded us. And we've been nursing that thing through life with different things, popularity, stuff, whatever. (laughs) It comes to us all. It comes to us all. And until we break the cycle of repetition and relief, we will forfeit the times of refreshing that only come from the presence of God. So this is where I'm going to close. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. (laughs) Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter number 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11. Familiar passage of scripture for those of us who are students of the word. Y'all ready for this? Oh, I'll just... Y'all ready for this? Don't, don't, don't. Oh, snap. The bill. We got to break that cycle. In Jesus' name. All right. Y'all with me? Uh, uh, let, me, let, me let, me, let me turn to 2 Samuel as well. Chapter number 11. Familiar passage of scripture. Y'all ready for this? This is the account of David. And this is later on in David's life. Notice the words later on. Some Bible commentators suggest that he's about 50 years old. 50. Just knowing human nature, man, and knowing men, weird stuff starts happening when you hit 50. (laughs) Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, in fact, weird stuff starts hitting us, man, at the age of 40. We want to know if we still got it. Come on, Terrell, give me some dap. (laughs) 
See me in my tight Lacoste t-shirt. I got permission from Pastor Wendy to wear it. But we want to know if we still got it. And here is David at 50 years old. Notice what the text says. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Notice the first phrase. It happened in the time that kings go to war. But in this season of his life, David, who was a king, who should have been going to war, decided to stay home. Think about that. Think about that. David is in a season in his life when he's not doing what he's supposed to do. You know, you know really who, who should repent? Those of us in this room today who are doing differently than we know to do. I want you to hear that. Those of us in this room today who are doing differently than we know to do. James chapter 2 says, anyone who knows what to do and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. Let me tell you, this is not about adultery and sexual sin and alcoholism. The scripture says, if you see your brother in need and don't help him, you know what to do. You don't do it to him, it is sin. The scripture says, you and I, if we find ourselves in that place where we're not willing to go across the street and help somebody in need, we need to repent. We need to change our way of thinking and change our direction. So David is the king. Listen to this. This is the guy, the man after God's own heart. This is the guy that, 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 that God handpicked. He was number eight. He was at the end of the list. Even the prophet got it wrong when he came to the house. Didn't even invite David to the party because David was just a shepherd boy. Talk about the enemy wounding us early. They invited every brother but David. And the prophet had to say, is there anyone else left? Anybody ever feel the rejection of family before? The dysfunction of family? When you don't look like the rest of them, you're the ugly duckling, the black sheep? Because he was the red-headed, freckled brother that was tending to sheep and wasn't even to, invited to the party that should have been held in his honor. Because God had chosen him. Talk about the enemy wounding you early. So now he's 50 years old. He's supposed to be leading the army in battle. And he stays home. You know where his downward spiral begins? It begins with something called complacency. The moment you and I become complacent, about the things that matter most. It opens the door for the enemy to wreak havoc. When the things that matter most or should matter most are no longer a priority and we become complacent as David became complacent. Come on, somebody. Remember what the scripture says, that Satan is like a roaring lion, right? He's looking for whom he may whom he may, whom he may devour. Who does he devour? 
He usually goes after, if you've been to Africa or watched National Geographic, you see the, the animals go after the weakest one in the pride or the weakest one in the, in the flock. He goes after the complacent ones. Because I can get that one. They're not sober. They're not vigilant. You should be fighting a war, but you're at home chilling. Oh, that's a good one. I'll pick you out easy. So David was fair game. Listen to what I'm saying. If David had been where he was supposed to be, if David had been doing what he was supposed to do, David is a conqueror. So now he's supposed to be on the battlefield and he, 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 he has this DNA of a warrior, but now because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, he finds a woman to conquer. You find an imitation. You find something else to replace what you should be doing. Oh, oh, so, so the story continues. It begins with this complacency. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very better, uh, beautiful to behold. Notice, complacency quickly moves over into contemplation. When, when, when you're complacent about what you're supposed to be doing, all of a sudden you start thinking things you shouldn't. You start entertaining things you wouldn't. Here he is now. Here, here he is. Here he is. Not on the battlefield where he's supposed to be. He's at home and he sees something he's not supposed to see. And he starts entertaining that thought. Have you ever been in a season in your life <laughs> where you were righteous and ratchet at the same time? <laughs> righteous and ratchet justified and janky at the same time. That's David. That's David. Then the door that opens is usually our complacency. Because when we become complacent, we start to entertain things we never would have. Y'all heard me say this probably a year or so ago. Where you sit determines what you see. And what you see determines what you desire. What you desire determines what you pursue. And what you pursue will determine what you have, good or bad. And if David had been in the right place, he never would have seen this. Let me tell you a question that we got to ask ourselves about what we're seeing in the text. Was David's soul healthy? Because if he had a healthy soul, he would have been out fighting with his men. What decisions are we making? Because our head ain't right. I want you to stop for a second and think about this now. David loved God, but his head wasn't right. Even when God shows up and talks to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? Do you think a God who is all-knowing didn't know where Adam was? He knew exactly what he was. The question was, Adam, where are you at in your head? And he wanted for Adam to acknowledge for himself, my head ain't right, God, help me. David's head wasn't right. He was the king and he had the title, head wasn't right. 
And complacency is usually followed by contemplation. Oh, 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 but it gets even more intense now. It gets even more intense because not only is he complacent, not only is he contemplating the wrong things because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, our contemplation will often lead us to compromise. Bad decisions. Verse 3 says, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, (laughs) come on, somebody, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Let me tell you how I know David head ain't right. Because now he sees the woman and now he acts on what he's been thinking. Who should repent? Not just people who ain't doing what they're supposed to be doing, people who actually act on their impulses. So now he sends for the woman. Let me tell you, let me tell you why this is a problem. Let me tell you why this is a problem. How much time I got, yo? What time is it? 17. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let y'all go in a minute. I'm gonna let, I promise you. I got I to get this out because I don't want next month, next week is Mother's Day. I got to get it out. Let me tell you the problem with having an unhealthy soul. If I don't deal with the toxicity of my soul, I start dragging other people into my foolishness and mayhem. That's what Nisi Nash called it. David is in a bad place in his head, but now he's bringing Bathsheba into it. That's his mess that is unresolved. Not only is he dragging Bathsheba into it, he's sending messengers. He's got people doing his junk for him. An unhealthy soul. Not only that, but Uriah is one of his, 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 his mighty men, his inner circle. David is so messed up in the head that he's about to take the wife, the wife of someone who has pledged their life to him. I will die for you, David. And he sends the mess, and the people say, no, 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 man, leave her alone. That girl's married. Not only is she married, that's your boy Uriah's wife, man. That's your dude, Uriah's wife. Listen to what David said. Listen to what David said. After they came back and told him, verse 4, he sent messengers again and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Verse 5. I didn't plan for this. And the woman conceived. Thought it was going to be a one-night stand. Now, David is looking for relief. He's trying to medicate his pain. And he's running to the arms of somebody else's wife. He's looking for relief now. Something is going on with David that made him not go to fight. He's dealing with this internal noise, and he's like, something's got to relieve this thing. And he turns to somebody else's wife. Now... The girl knocked up. What you gonna do? David is so messed up in his head, y'all. Let me read this story. Oh, no. David is so messed up in his head, I'm just gonna go fast, fast and furious. The fate of the furious. Tyrese. <laughs> 
David is so messed up in his head. So he, he took the woman. He sent messengers. So now people know what David did now. Yo, I, he is so messed up in his head, he doesn't even care who knows what he did. Doesn't even care. I just need relief. So there's messengers who know what he did. Now the woman pregnant, <clears throat> and he sends for the woman's husband, his boy. Say, hey, man, you've been fighting on the battlefield so long, you need to take a break. Looked him in the eye and told him that. This is David, the man after God's own heart, who wrote about 90% of the book of Psalms. Head all messed up. Unhealthy soul. So, so, so uh, he said, hey, man. So he fed him real good and said, hey, man, go, go home, man. Go chill with your wife. Because that's the cover-up now. Because then he can say, oh, yeah, he came home from the battlefield and he was with his wife and they did what grown folk do. That's Uriah's baby. Uh, uh, look, complacency leads to contemplation, leads to compromise. But compromise always got to have a cover-up. So he's trying to cover it up. Uh, Uriah has so much integrity, he said, my brothers are fighting. People are dying. I'm not going to take this opportunity to, to be with my wife. I'm going to sit right here outside your door, David. I ain't going to that house. Now David's like, oh, snap. <laughs> uh, we got to make this thing go away. This got to go away because this ain't, yeah, I didn't plan for all this. This is David now. Love Jesus. Righteous. Ratchet. Ratchet. Paul was righteous and ratchet. Paul said, the things I know to do, I don't do. And the things I know I'm not supposed to do, that's what I do. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? This is Paul now planting churches all over the world. Said, I... Healthy soul. So, so let, me, let, let me read the end of the story and then I'll let y'all go. Uh, what's the verse? Uh, huh? Where we at? No, we're going to fast forward through this thing. So this doesn't work. What we, we said, verse 11. This doesn't work out, uh, uh, Jessica. Uh, so David sent for him, made him drunk. He still wouldn't go to the house. So listen to what David did, verse 14. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Joab is the commander at the battlefront. David writes a letter and gives it to Uriah. You know what the letter is? The letter is Uriah's death sentence. David is so messed up in his head that he writes a letter telling Joab, put, put Uriah in the heat of the battle. And when it gets really hot, withdraw from him. Guess who took that letter? Uriah. Uriah is carrying his death sentence. David wrote the letter by his head and said, look, <clears throat> with loyalty in his heart, our king sent this letter. Joab opens the letter. And in that letter, Joab has instructions 
pretty much to kill Uriah. Now, this is David. Now, he done done brought somebody else in. He's going to make somebody else a murderer because of his unhealthy soul. So guess what they do? They do exactly that. They do exactly that. And so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger came and said, man, that dude's done. Verse 25, then David said to the messengers, Thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you, man. Joab, why are you tripping? Don't be sad. He says, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Listen to what he's saying. He said this kind of stuff happens all the time on the battlefield. Don't be mad. You see how messed up David was? rationalization, that he just gave the instruction for somebody to be killed, and he's comforting the guy he gave the instruction to and said, don't worry about it, man. This kind of stuff happens all the time. And I promise you this is where I close. I promise you this is where I close. In order to make sure my soul is healthy, I hang out with other pastors, and we compare notes. So after we're done talking, man, I'm about to leave, and this pastor says to me, hey, man, uh, I need to talk to you. No, he said, what do you think about X? And it's about another pastor who recently had to resign his position of a mega church, huge mega church. He said, what do you think about that? He said, well, I don't know the guy. And then I went through this whole message with him. With this pastor, he said, man, I understand it. He said, when I, uh, he said, I knew this person in 1998. I worked closely with him. And in about 2002, he said, he said, he made a statement to me. He made a statement to me. And I said, you can teach me about ministry in his head. He said, you can teach me anything you want to about ministry, but you can never teach me anything about life. And so this is what he said, this person said, this was in 2002, this is what this person told him. He said, man, you're just a young buck, you knew the ministry, you need to come over to the dark side with the rest of us. And as a young minister, as a young minister, this young man made the decision that you can tell me anything about how to preach and all this different stuff but I'll never take a word of advice from you about how to live my life. This guy, though, was a rock star, though, traveling all around the world, man. Thousands of people showed up. Pastors of great church, thousands of people, and just lost everything. Why? Rationalization. That there is a dark side that's normal even for pastors. And that's what happens when our souls are unhealthy. Listen to this. David takes the guy's wife 
has a baby, kills him, and doesn't even repent. Doesn't even repent until he's confronted in chapter 12 by a prophet named Nathan. That's what we're going to talk about after Mother's Day. How to work our way back. Let me, let, me, let me tell you the problem with having an unhealthy soul. It's not just the destruction it can bring to the life of the individual. But look at the collateral damage. All the other people that are drawn into the vortex of David's toxicity. Because he wouldn't deal with his pain. So as we close, why don't you come, Nabil? As we close, as we close, let me just say this again. Let me reiterate this. God is not condemning us. God is not wanting to beat us over the head. He wants us to have that moment of clarity. He wants us to have that moment of clarity. So we can say, you know what? God, your word is true. Here's my heart. This is what's eating me up. This is what's messing with my head. This is this repetitious behavior. I'm not even sure why I do it, but I keep doing it. And I know when I do it, it brings relief. But I'm still empty after. What God wants for each of us is for us to come into a place where we truly allow him to heal us. And I'm telling you now, I went back 17 years and said, you know what, I'm dealing with some faith wounds. But I got to go back a little bit further and say, okay, Lord, help me with this because I think in that place, I was wounded and I didn't deal with it. And I just said, oh, just forgive him. Oh, it's okay. When it really did hurt. And I didn't really give it to God. He wants to break the strongholds of rationalization so that he can break the repetition. So that instead of temporary relief, temporary relief, he can heal us. Because when we self-medicate, we delay God's healing process. As we close the service this morning, I just ask the team to come and just sing a few lines from this song. And I just want you to make your seat wherever you're sitting this morning. I just want you to make it your altar.